Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the MTech Access Words of Wisdom webinar, where each month we're bringing you the latest from inside the NHS, um, getting to grips with the evolving NHS, exploring the challenges our guests face, how they're responding and, and how systems are evolving around them. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Indy Singh, who's the Chief Pharmacist at University Hospitals Birmingham NHS Foundation Trust. Indy's worked in clinical and commercial roles within the NHS and now has responsibility for the provision of the pharmacy service within the trust and ensuring appropriate governance of medicines, as well as being an advisor to local and national organisations. I'm going to try and get through as many questions that were sent in in advance as we can do, but there was a huge amount sent in, so uh, we'll try and cover a full the subject matter, but maybe not every question. So, Indy, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Um, just very quickly, could you summarise your role and your organisation for, for our audience? Yes, so as you said, I'm Chief Pharmacist at University Hospitals Birmingham, which is one of the largest trusts in England. We're four-sighted organisations, essentially or fairly large DGHs. We do a number of specialised services. We do the full breadth of services since our merger with Heart of England Foundation Trust. So we've got maternity and paediatrics as well, which we, we didn't have previously. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Um, and in, in terms of your own role, um, we had an interesting conversation the other, day, the other day. Can you give us an idea of your medicines budget and, and how many items that equates to across the trust? So the medicines budget is about 270 million that we're, we're dealing with. I think you're referring to the number of items which are prescribed per month. Frankly, I've, yeah. I've forgotten the figure, but I know it's thousands of items that we do prescribe each month with, with, within the organisation. And we are fully electronic, electronic prescribing within the organisation as well, which does help with management of prescribing decisions. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it was up at about 300,000 a month, wasn't it, which which I was astounded by. Um, so in, in terms of how you deliver medicines across the trust then um, and, and locally, I suppose, could you give us a bit of an overview of how the different services work work, work locally? So that's all the hospital services and, and your other local partners to actually get the medicines out to the patients. So the supply of medicine itself is, is fairly complex, but the use of Electronic prescribing does help us significantly with, with the provision of medicines because we can see wherever there's misdoses occurred within the organisation and we are aiming towards a position of 0% consecutive misdoses. So we can understand someone missing one misdose but not a second item because we do hold over 4,000 medications in stock. They also have the challenge of the discharge process and also the outpatient because we on the QE site, we have, well, we used to have 10,000 people a week walking through the doors and all of that has gone virtual. And of course, with COVID, there's a lot of virtual clinics now, which will continue. I'm not sure if your audience may have seen in HSJ just, just the other day around the NHSE's draft contract was referring 
to insisting that providers can offer the patients an option between virtual or face-to-face, -face, but they're rolling back from that now. As many providers are saying they're not they're not in a position to do that. We've had to change significantly our outpatient model, whereby now 60% of medications are delivered to outpatients. We've had to move from having two couriers to having six couriers now to support that delivery model with numerous prescriptions being posted out to patients. That does bring in, into play the, the interface with primary care that has matured significantly during COVID, mainly because of the vaccination programme. We've had to work very collectively together. We've understood each other's pressures and, ch and chat challenges. We still have the challenges of GPs not wanting to take on some prescribing due to the need of a shared care protocol or, or more information. But with the area of prescribing committee, we have addressed a number of those challenges over the years. We have formal systems in place so where GPs can escalate back in where they think it's inappropriate prescribing. The, the key challenge we still have left to address is the new sequence that's coming around providing community pharmacists with discharge information. And that is more of a challenge because of technology rather than a will to want to do that. But also on the other end, it's understanding that the community pharmacists are aware of what they need to do when they receive that information. And it is all around supporting the patients and ensuring they get appropriate counselling, especially with any new medication that they, that they may have received. But medications, everyone says, is the most common intervention in a hospital setting. Invariably, everyone who gets discharged just receive a medication. Well, what did surprise me, though, from an outpatient setting, only about 12% of patients get a prescribed medication. Okay. The majority of outpatients is more con consultationary and also reviewing results, etc. In terms of pharmacies, that did surprise me. I expected the majority of patients to walk out of medicine. But like I said, having, having seen 10,000 a week, I'm pretty glad that they don't. I think we've got to cope with, with that aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's fascinating. And one thing that you mentioned there is about your zero percent uh, consecutive missed doses. How close to that are you? And, and with not seeing people uh, face to face, has that become a lot harder? Well, not necessarily, because with, with electronic prescribing, you don't necessarily need to be on the ward. So our total missed doses across the organisation are only about six percent. So it's not terribly big in its own right. The consecutive missed doses is at the moment about one or two percent that, that we are dealing with. The challenge is getting the medicine to the ward but the biggest challenge is the nurse being able to see the medicine in front of her which seems to be the biggest challenge we have got because you might send the medicine up but they still can't find it. So <laughs> and, the, and it's how do you address that? I know a number of people are saying you go down the electronic carts route so Pixies, Omnicell, Mediwell etc but they're, they're extremely Cost, cost prohibitive but the issue you have there which most my senior nurses colleagues are saying you end up with a queue outside that machine mm, because you've yeah, got all okay. the nurses coming up wanting to get all the medicine because everyone everyone has a 12 o'clock medicine don't they they don't stagger them so, so there are the challenges associated with with that with those as well but one way we've started to alleviate that is we've trained up a number of technicians which are actually doing the drug administration on behalf of the nursing staff. So in the organisation, we've got about 16 technicians which are employed full-time on the ward. And their role is to administer medication or support the nurses, administer medication. In those wards, we've seen misdoses drop significantly and consecutive misdoses are at 0%.
Yeah, fantastic. And it's a really good illustration of everyone at the moment is talking about the role technology can play, but it can do a huge amount, but it can't do that last little bit, can it? Or at least not yet until you've got a, no. a, a, a robots marching around. But mm. um, coming back to sort of the, the, the way the system's developing, um, obviously you're doing a lot already with the community and you mentioned the challenges around sort of getting community pharmacy involved. What do you hope might change in terms of the pharmacy and medicines piece through the development of the ICSs? For me, it's more complex medicine prescribing happening within primary care. Uh, today, we have the implementation guideline published for, for the ICSs. But unfortunately, it still reads as though CCGs are going to morph into ICS and provide a trust collaborate, but alongside the ICS rather than firmly within the ICS. It's very confusing as to where provider trusts are going to sit within within the ICS and I do sincerely hope this isn't just, a, just about moving deck chairs around the system so when we're from PCGs to CCGs and we don't want that we we want a full system reform happening that's what Simon Stevens did did, did promise us at the outset so, so in my mind I'd, I'd love to see especially with the technology we've got now joint virtual consultations with GPs so the GP sees a patient that they can remotely get a specialist con consultation and they can, they can have the consultation with the patient sat there and they can make a decision there and then whether this warrants a secondary care referral or whether that the GP can be advised to follow a different course of action for that patient at, before they bounce into secondary care. So what we want to do is to ensure that those who come to secondary care are the most appropriate people because it's not cheap since they walk through the door you're going to have patient attendance cost le levied on to that person. So, so it's around how do we do that within primary care with with the medicines and devices bill that has just gone through the house of lords and parliament this greater scope around hospital pharmacies dispensing items and sending them to another community pharmacy mm. the consultation is out in relation to that but the bill does allow that from a legislation perspective and that could be transformative because the difficulty we've always had is giving prescriptions to community pharmacies they don't have access to the drug if they do the price they don't get access to the past prices or the other discount prices we have and fundamentally they don't keep it in stock yeah, yeah. They, they want to order in a just-in-time manner which does compromise the patient and and also not sure how brexit encourages or discourages this from a pharma perspective there's a risk of parallel exporting happening which is why there's also resistance about providing those agents so whereas if secondary care was to dispense it and then send it to a local community pharmacy it reduces my cost in terms of getting drugs out to the patient's home it ensures that that relationship with the community pharmacist and the patient still remains and also from our end and importantly it ensures that the community pharmacist can check what other drugs the patient is on and ensure there aren't any interactions which we may not have noticed by not having the, the full drug history for that patient of course we won't know what over-the-counter medicines that patient is purchasing as well as that community pharmacist should also have some awareness of. Yeah, okay. So if, if you're going down a, a route like that and you're pushing as much out as you can do, what what are the sorts of things that would stay within the trust? Essentially, one could argue nothing. If you, if you get the model right, you could have a lot of primary care facilitated management of patients. So, so secondary care really needs to be where there needs to be a specialist face-to-face -face review that needs to happen or medication where there needs to be that extra level of monitoring one that springs to mind immediately is fit in which you have to have cardiac monitoring for 24 hours after the first 
first initiation. But anything else you'd, you'd hope we could do from a primary care perspective. And we, we mustn't forget for the last 10 years or so, there's been the mandate that you must, if you're going to refurb or build a new hospital, you must have less beds in it and it must be smaller footprint than you were initially. A good example is Sandor and West Birmingham Trust, which are building the Midland Met, which I believe has got 300 fewer beds than they've got currently. And the footprint is smaller than their, their, their current footprint. So the mantra ever, ever since Patricia Hewitt's day and our health, our care, our say, has been around that care in the community. What's been lacking is how do you link primary care with secondary care in an efficient manner? And that's always been the challenge with the commissioning agenda we've had. And with the white paper, the intention is to remove the commissioning aspect of it and move to a more of a health economy. And hence why the ICSs have been told they must ensure that their footprint aligns with the LEA. Yeah, yeah. To again remove any of those social and healthcare barriers which which may arise. Yeah. Okay. So that's really interesting because I think one of the barriers to a lot of movements of care has been the the perceived uh, need by hospitals, by secondary care, to hold on to certain things. But you were saying in terms of the medicines piece, looking at you know community IV, at remote monitoring or home monitoring, all of these things. Mm -hmm. Actually, you're, you're going to be more proactively looking at ways to enable that movement of care rather than getting rid of the easy stuff and keeping onto the keeping hold of the harder stuff is that right well, well we already are because because of covid number of trusts have have set up what we call virtual wards where they'll give some monitoring equipment to the patient which will feed in on a regular basis to the hospital and they'll do a daily phone call with the patient just to ensure that they're okay and then and they've got triggers for them to bounce back into hospital sh should they need to and the concern from patients always has been yes i don't mind sitting at home and self-monitoring, how do I get back into the hospital? That's mm. always been, been the concern. And so by having the systems in place that allow that patients are more at ease and they're, and they're happier being at home and that this telemedicine is going to expand. We're doing a lot around artificial intelligence. So we've got a dermatology clinic whereby GP refers into a photographer, I want for a better word, where a, a picture gets taken of the area that there's, there's a concern and that patient that picture is reviewed from an AI perspective then a consultant will also look at that and decide whether we actually to see that patient or not whether it's cancerous or it's something more serious and then, then they can bounce and if it's not then they stay out in community so AI can't be can't be mistaken with the AI we have to also remember the genomics agenda which is getting an aggressive pace now so we'll have a number of drugs where we'll test the patient first to decide which drug is best for them and that's going to put all of the protocol driven aspects and all the guidelines fully up in the air. So you'd get yeah. some people who would bounce straight to third tier medication versus others which would just be just be first tier based on what the genomic makeup is for that patient. Yeah and that, that's a really interesting area that that certainly we've we've talked about for a few years about the art of the possible and, and I think there's a perception that maybe it's still a way off, but how, how close do you think it is before you're using the genomic testing route on well, a well, level we, of frequency? Well, we already are. There's two drugs NHSC approved recently, which needs genomics. The, the National Genomics Programme is just finalising the tender. So we will have all those GMSAs in place. There's JDs already been written for lead pharmacists for each GMSA, so those, that recruitment should start fairly shortly on this. But the key thing is to educate all pharmacists and community pharmacists around genomic medicine and how 
how, how it d does work. But then the, the other element should go back to is around the, around the artificial intelligence. That's going to build into electronic prescribing systems. So you, you'll have a position whereby the AI will inform you when you need to do dose adjustments or even change drugs. So if someone's renal function starts to deteriorate or, or liver function is not where it should be. We've already got a rules-based post in UHB, which does semi-do that, but not to the extent we'd like it to. So from a clinical pharmacy thing, clinical pharmacy could change dramatically going forward because the AI could even inform you when you're about to prescribe a drug that you need to reduce the dose due to the renal function that the patient's got but the big element there is around patient record that's the other barrier we've got and I know down down in Southland and King's, King's College Way they're already scoping this and we are looking to scope it internally ourselves as well around how, how do we get to using this one system particularly around what we call the clinical portal and the clinical noting so the, so the GP can see everything the hospital has done and they would use the same system to record their notes so the hospital can see what the GP is and the paramedics can see everything if they ever have to turn up and then where appropriate the community pharmacists can also d d dip in and, and see that record. Yes, we've got the challenges of Caldecott and GDPR and all those, all those aspects and it is, it is a concern that patients don't seem to understand when you come to electronic access of records they get very concerned but they don't mind you putting their notes in a taxi and sending them to somewhere else. I think that's completely normal and okay, okay to do. When it becomes electronic, all of a sudden, all these firewalls come up and, and I think yeah. it's not appropriate because Facebook is going to use it to do something nasty with. Okay. Um, in terms of the AI piece then, what you're doing at the moment or what you're looking at, what kind of data sets can you actually pull on to, to kind of inform AI, because I, I guess there's all sorts of stuff out there that would be really valuable and, and having sort of national data would be, be even better, but what, what can you realistically use? This is the thing, we're, ex we're extremely data rich, so we're already doing a retrospective, so this is around uh, scans and radiology. So we're, we're looking to implement AI into radiology. What we've done is go back to three years worth of scans. We've got the AI to review those scans to review if what the AI says concurs with what what we did. Of course, there's, there's a huge governance challenge there we've had to address, which is what if the AI picks up something the consultant didn't, which we should have done, which has led to a detrimental effect to the patient. But we're doing it retrospectively to give the clinicians confidence that when the AI does roll out, that it will roll out successfully. Around medicine, so within our e-prescribing system, we've got all, all the renal, renal data, liver data, all the UNEs and FBCs that we need. So again, you can retrospectively look at that data and see for, for the relevant drugs what the impact has been on the renal liver function if you want to do that, or in terms of dosing, has the dosing been changed at the appropriate juncture? So you could map renal function against dose and see at what stage you should have reduced and whether they did reduce it or did, did not reduce it. If they did, then what was the outcome implication for the patient? Also, you could review if someone decided to change the drug completely. So from a set set point, you can see exact date and time a drug change was made, map it back to the patient's use and ease, et cetera, and see if that was a reason why. And it could be an inappropriate reason, just because I didn't realise that education piece that they could actually do something with that drug, which would still be safe for the patient. So in terms of hypothesis, I think we can answer any question that anyone might have, particularly around drugs and patients. We, we could go as far as looking at how how long someone spent in ICU, what drugs they were on, and when they came out, what ward they went to, and how long they stayed on that ward, and what drugs they were on then, and then 
how long it took before they got discharged. If someone wanted to say there was say there was a, a condition in a in a particular area, we could actually focus on all the patients in the trust at any given time with that condition. But what I really want to do is to is to get this data and compare it with other organisations across the country and just see whether variation in outcomes and prescribing may be. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, 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 it, I wasn't expecting to talk too much about AI, but I'm getting really into it. I could probably do the whole afternoon on it. But, but before we move on, just one final question, I suppose. In terms of kind of that, the, the AI and the automation of prescribing decisions, potentially, what, how does the role of the prescriber evolve alongside that? Is it going to be diminished or will it just be look slightly different? No, no you, you, you'll never diminish the role of the prescriber, what you'll, what you'll end up with is structured-based prescribing. A clinician would still need to sign it off. We're never going to reach a position where the AI would just prescribe and off, off you go. But uh, what, what I mean by structured-based prescribing is, is once you've done your diagnosis and put everything in, that the system would say this is the best treatment option for this patient. And then the, the consultant would either disagree or agree. With that, we've already used structure-based prescribing in antimicrobials. So if the results come back, the person's got pneumonia and they're not allergic to penicillin, then it will just say, well, these are the, this is a structured regimen that you need to prescribe if they're allergic to penicillin, and this is the regimen that you need to prescribe. So they don't need to, need to think about it. And you could argue it, that we're maybe dumbing down people, but I think that's the risk of, of technology anyway. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Most of us now don't even bother to turn our car lights on, do we? Because it just... They just come on. <laughs> we don't even think that's about why, it. That's why A and E attendances are going back up. <laughs> um, just um, we'll, we'll we'll move on a little bit now. And and this week you've already referenced it. There's a couple of documents: the uh, the, the consult consultation on the, the tariff for this year, and also the, the operational planning guidance. Um, there's a, a lot in there, obviously, around aligned, aligned incentives and and new ways of funding things. In terms of the introduction of aligned incentives, what impact do you see that having on medicines and how you do things locally? The, 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 the truth of the matter, this is just changing of wording. Mm. It, it, it is exactly what we're working under since COVID, which is the aligned incentive essentially block. So th those drugs sit on the baseline and we're responsible for the funding associated with those and any, any that we use. And the other drugs will continue to be in the cost and volume nature of things. And it, the document makes it very clear early on that they still use the terminology cost and volume. So we are going to work as we have currently been working. And the reason for that, I believe, is which the implementation document, which probably this morning, does make clear. There's go there is going to be elements of specialised prescribing that come down into ICSs. But we don't know what yet or the, ex or the extent of that. But the worrying thing with the new contract that they're proposing, there's going to be no, no opportunity for regional decision making in terms of all the drugs which are passed through, as we call them. They will, that will all be nationally decided upon as to what's, what's done. So we were speaking yesterday with our regional finance leads and, and clinical leads, and they said they've got no autonomy going forward because before we, we would speak locally, particularly around the incentive piece, mm. well, how can we be incentivised to support the appropriate prescribing of the pass-through drugs, but all that is going to be a national level, at least for the next 12 months. Yeah. But we're, we're waiting with interest to see what they 
take out a specialised commission for it to ICS. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I suppose my follow up, because my reading of some of it was that that group of pass through drugs might reduce slightly and there'll be, be things from what may be there at the moment that come to you. Is, is that your reading of it? it, it it's unknown. If you listen to Simon Stevens from about four years ago, his view was NHSC should only do the very specialised drugs, so that that be your liposomal disorders, your CAR Ts, because he was saying oncology is not specialised anymore, HIV is not specialised, Pepsi is not specialised. That can be managed locally. It doesn't need NHSC. But the challenge there is how do you prevent postcode prescribing? Yeah. That's the one good thing that has come from NHSC and them holding that budget and paying for those drugs. We don't have postcode prescribing anymore. Everyone has access mm. to, to the same tier of drugs. There is talk about NHSE would continue with their specialised circulars, but then how do you ensure that the ICS is adhering to those circulars? Because the temptation would be, what well, we were back in the 90s, is use the cheapest drugs and delay escalating up to the most appropriate drugs, which is the last thing pharma, I think ourselves, what want to see. So I think the devil is going to be in the detail around this as to how this is all going to gel together. But the, but the, key, the other key element is, how does the funding change as the as a as a as the value of interactions increases as activity increases? So if our HIV pool grows, will we get more more money to support? Because at the moment, we want to a better word. We've got bottomless pits with NHSE. Mm. There's, there's no cap, so it doesn't matter how many HIV patients we've got or Hep C or oncology. As long as we're doing the blue tech forms of using the appropriate drugs in line with nice in line with their commissioning guidelines, we will get paid. Yeah. So, it's good. Okay. so that, that finance piece is going to be extremely interesting and challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, and it's sending my head spinning already. And in, in terms of that specialised commissioning piece, then, that it, it, those bits that may come your way that aren't there already, that may suddenly appear on on your local budget that haven't done, what, what would that materially mean for you? Will you be looking at those in different ways? Will you be thinking, oh, we're spending a lot on this that we weren't before? Or is it just that kind of thing that, well, we, we need to prescribe them because they're, to avoid the postcode lottery, using whatever framework that might be, and we just kind of got to swallow the cost and, and catch it up elsewhere? No, no I, I perceive there'll be more guideline-based prescribing will start to reoccur. Do you remember, we used to have that 20 years ago now, and we'll, I think we'll revert back to that with with the sole focus though ensuring we we're not restricting access mm. just going to make sure it's appropriate access and this where you could argue genomics comes back into play yeah, yeah. so you could have genomics supporting that guideline but the patient moving through through those guidelines and perhaps at the moment you get the you get the nhse service circulars you get the nice guidance but there's nothing to join them together and mm. and join the dots and then you, you also don't have the pathway into those therapies and that's what we'll have to create to ensure that most appropriate patients do get to that that therapy. But also yeah. there's going to be element of discontinuation, hmm. ensuring that only patients who are responding continue with it and we, we do discontinue as quickly as we can. Yeah, okay. And I'm, I'm just thinking more broadly as well about for, for every patient that's taking a medicine, some of them will be low cost medicines and the medicine is a, a tiny fraction of their treatment. For others, the medicine will be 
the largest by quite a significant way of, of all the care they received. Will there be a more holistic view for every patient of the package of care that, that wraps around them and the role of medicine within that? And how do you direct the, the money in the, in the most effective way? There has to be because we have to we have to realize sometimes giving some people some low cost medicine just just delays the inevitable, uh, but also puts them in a more difficult position. And we're using even more expensive drugs to sort out the mess mm. that's being created by, by by the delay. And I think I'm hoping with ICS that we do we do look at medicines differently and and start looking at where where we can pump prime and invest to save. To start patients as soon as you wouldn't normally, but knowing that the long-term benefit is going to be greater by doing it in that manner rather than putting them through sequentially through drugs and nothing more than a cost basis. And that's what those pathways are driven by. We'll start with the very cheapest and just work our way up as as the person deteriorates. Whether and the only way we can get there is if we start heading towards five-year budgets, which hopefully the ICSs could. Now you may recall NHSE tried a two-year budget. Yeah. At one stage, we did, we did work well, but really we need to get to a five-year budget position, then we can start planning for the health of the population. Mm. And would, would, you, would, would you be looking at medicines differently if you had a five-year budget? I, I think for pharmacy, we, all, we already do, but it's then getting the argument, and clinicians do as well, but getting the argument back to the payers is, is always the, the argument. Because, well, what, what, of course, what we always find challenging, we say to a payer, we need to spend you spend two, two million now in three years time you're going to save six million mm. and for them it's a one-year budget you know i can't i can't use all that money now in, in the hope it's going to appear in a different budgetary cycle mm. so do, does the the conversation and it's what a lot of our audience are interested in is the, the conversation around the value of medicines and the role that they play do you see that 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 is changing around you people are recognizing and, the value and, rather than the cost I think we're on a journey to get there, but it is a journey, and we have been getting there slowly but surely. And and the and the Hep C was a very good example, whereby different Hep C products were appropriate for different people, and we did it. It wasn't, and it should be, but elementary genomics with the Hep C, Hep C product with HIV, we've semi done that now as well. Where rather than saying all patients go set pathway. There are different pathways for different patients and they can have access to different drugs. So I, I do see that expanding wider with, with, with other drugs as well. But it comes back to how do we do that on a national scale to prevent postcode prescribing and ensure equality across England. Yeah, okay. And, and what role, uh, uh, we're talking about all the documents that have been published over the last few months and, and every time we speak there, there seems to be another one and um, the commercials medicines framework is another one that came out that was intended to drive um, clinical and cost-effective medicines to patients more quickly do, do you see that having a material impact on how you do things differently or is it all wrapped up in the same piece it, it is wrapped up in the same piece I know DH has been pr promising industry for a very long time around rapid access of, of medicine but unfortunately we're from a medical viewpoint we're a very conservative country and that consultants don't like to use novel therapies very quickly unless they've had some exposure to them from a, from a legislation perspective we've got the the EAM scheme now which is allowing drugs to come through quickly through the pathway and for the first time we've had two drugs recently 
which although haven't finished the licensing process, MHRA have supported by REEMS their use within the NHS, which NHSC has commissioned. So I think we're delivering on the early access piece. But I think for what Pharma wants, which is significant early adoption, I'm not sure whether that, that will occur. But one thing which is helping is the controlled early exposure to those agents to select consultants who, who know their field. And then that knowledge base is helping. But what's really going to help is real life data. So if you can convert that early access into actual real life data that can be extracted out and then shared with the wider community, then that will allow for more, more prescribers to have the confidence of using using that, those agents. I think everyone is very much so scarred by the likes of thalidomide, which happened, I know happened in the 70s, but it's, it's still there that drugs can have adverse implications. And you've only got to look at Europe and AstraZeneca vaccine, haven't you? You know, it's going to clot you up and give you brain hemorrhages if you even dare get injected. So, so, so you do, you do have to appreciate that they're taking a clinical risk. And, and, and also, we have to be mindful that most of the trials only have a few hundred patients in. Mm. And then you're extrapolating to populations of thousands. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you mentioned the real world or real life data. Um, what else do you think might help that that those conversations you mentioned? You know, clinicians are hesitant about novel therapies for you know very very good reasons in in most cases. Is there anything else that you think might help give them confidence, or is it kind of that cold hard data that they need to see? And unfortunately, it's data and and discussions with peers. Those are the the sole two two main elements that, that they do rely on and I can fully understand understand why that they do do that. Yeah okay fair enough. Um, the other thing men mentioned in the the commercial medicines framework is, is the need for simple commercial arrangements. What does that phrase mean to you if anything? That, that is a phrase that's, that's been pushed for for many years which essentially just means you want a simple discount yeah we, we don't we don't want volume-based agreements we we don't want complex passes whereby you get the first three months free or you get your money back if the patient doesn't respond i i personally think that's the wrong direction because you you haven't commercially you can't you can't take full advantage of the commercial agenda that, that's probably available to you and, and we have we have seen a, a number of cases of our overall spenders increase because I can understand why we to move in that direction. It makes it easier in terms of the pass through drug element because you know what the cost is and everyone's got to pay that price. And it makes it much easier to manage. The the other uh, other thing I wanted to, to touch on with you, um in, in, well, in terms of that, that piece around industry, where do you think industry could and should be supporting at the moment? This is always a challenging question and industry always have that conversation with us. And as you know, Tom, my soapbox is a bit of old art data. Hmm. I, I, I strongly believe I'm missing a trick with the rollout of electronic prescribing. In, in in relation to harnessing 
that real estate and I fully appreciate it's difficult for to get access to that data but there, there must be a way a way around it by using intermediaries etc whereby we can get over that but the, the wealth of data now in the NHS is is unbelievable and we've already got the GP data through through EMIS etc and the other one system other systems that they use so be able to be able to align that as well because the key thing I'd want want to see is once we've discharged the patient or from an outpatient setting on a, on a particular medicine regimen as to how long does that continue in primary care is it continuing appropriately yeah okay so it's, it's understanding more than just what that particular medicine does but what what uh, how is it actually taken what what's the what's the patient experience like how easy is it for other services to support someone with that medicine is, is that right Yes, but, and also what it's all about outcomes now, isn't it? And I think where you can adjust their value is by measuring outcomes. So it is a case of, well, how long before that patient bounces back in a, a class, it could be your anti-epileptic medicine as to how long does a patient stay seizure-free? Yes, we've got the studies and clinical trials, but we've got the real life data, you know, we've got flashing lights and all the other factors in the environment. And, and so and, and how powerful could that be if a drug manufacturer could turn turn around and say you know we've got we've got data which demonstrates three years worth of someone not having an, an epileptic seizure without yeah. agent and and also to be able to put in there's not been a need for polypharmacy either because then what else one could argue is because you've added other drugs on that's why the stage seizure free you'd have all that information to say well this is this was the medicine journey this patient went on and, and they may find that where patients have got some adjuvant therapy they're the ones who are most seizure free so really shouldn't shouldn't from day one the patient be started on a combination mm. of two or three agents rather than just the one agent yeah i suppose the challenge all, is all really that all that data is out there it, it, yeah it's all there for for review yeah i suppose the challenge is who, who's actually going to start doing those bits of work isn't it and that's i suppose the challenge you're laying down isn't it that the, the data is there who, who's going to through it and, and and find out what it means because cause, cause, cause the issue is the nhs is data rich but we're time poor mm. and and we're not getting nhsd or nhsx to do what we'd like them to do and i'm not really sure what the future of both of those organizations is i know they've got a new new lead in those organizations but i'm not very clear on on their direction of travel because one could argue that's where this piece of work should sit mm. And the, the other the other thing as well that I suppose plays into that, that that's been referenced um, is the proposed national medicines registries um, that I think was mentioned in the what, in in documentation recently. Have you got a view on what that does, what that means, what what you could use that for? I don't know what I because we've got we've got you know we've got a number of registries already. Yeah. Most of them tend to be disease focused rather than drug focused. And again, digitally, the consultants put the data in, but what comes out of that, I, I don't know. Like a, a very good example is around Hep C, where NHSC insisted that we collect lots of data. And we've been doing Hep C now for three years with the oral agent. I've, I've not seen anything come out. Mm. Just to say, say anything in terms of this code of patients, this is the best regimen to go for, and these, you should use these. And for these, you shouldn't even use it at all. It comes back to we're very good at collating all the data, 
but in terms of analysing it and make and getting some outcomes out of it, we're, we're very bad at. Does Does it feel a bit like we can collect data, therefore we should, and then we'll figure out what to do with it later? But that's a very good phrase, and it, it makes me come back to the the sites that we've merged with. They all pharmacies use a tracker system. Hmm. So on the QE side, we were only tracking three, four types of prescription. They were tracking about 15. And I've had that conversation of, you're collating, what are you doing with this data you're collating? And we've, we've rationalized down what, what they're collating data on to just stuff that you're going to do something with and someone's going to review. Yeah, It's, it's okay. a bit like having a filing cabinet full of paper and never yeah. opening it for five years and someone wants to throw it away. Says, oh, you can't, I need that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I suppose for you in, in a, a well-resourced hospital trust being unable to do that, the challenge for primary care is is even harder, isn't it? That, that they've got, mm. you know, arguably an even richer data set in some respects, um, but they're even, even less likely to be able to do something with it. So how do you see PCNs um, kind of stepping up in, in terms of the medicines piece and being able to play a, a greater role in, in the whole thing? Now I, I see under, under the ICS ban, I do see the informatics piece becoming more and more important. And within our ICS, we already have the informatics work stream that is, is pushing forward in relation to this. I, I, I think for us, it depends on what AI can do in terms of analyzing that data and pulling information out. The challenge we have is working with third parties. You've all read in the papers about DeepMind and concerns that people have. But unfortunately, we need to work with people like that to be able to get the outcomes that we want. And we've got to get to a position whereby we can reassure the public and government that the, the data won't be abused, that it will be used appropriately and it will still remain the data of the NHS. You can see how financially how extremely valuable this data can be and hence why the, the, there are concerns uh, around it and also there is concerns around protecting patients privacy as well because if this data got into the public domain you, 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 can, you can infer diagnosis and all sorts of yeah. things from it which of course you, you don't because with Google now anyone can see a drug name Google it and say oh that's what's going on with that person yeah. But we've, we've got we've got to address this somehow, and I'm hoping with the ICSs, with working jointly with the government, with NHSX, NHSD, we'll we'll be able to achieve it somehow. Mm. So I suppose flipping on its head and, and taking the data piece aside for a second, um, think about it from the kind of the patient perspective. What do you see as the greatest opportunities for you to better enable access to to the right medicines? It, it's not around access, Tom. It's 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 around what a better word, patient self-reporting. Because the, the patient knows what symptoms they've still got, what symptoms are being alleviated, and and the ideal w would be them being able to feed that data into the NHS, which then gets analysed by by AI or something else, which can then say, well, this patient's on the wrong. Therapy, diabetes is the easiest one to do. If we could feed in the blood glucose levels straight in, we could pick up very early on. If someone's an oral therapy, we need to either change that oral therapy or they do the injectable therapy. 
well, they need to move on to something else. You could argue with with thyroxine, etc. That's another good area. I think from a pharmacist, the the, the ideal dream would be an, an excelled version of the Japanese toilet. You can just sit on it. Tells it tells us everything that we need to know about the about the person. Measures your blood pressure, every blood, your blood glucose, and the whole works really. Yeah. yeah okay. And because, is this some... that's, that's, that's one place we know all patients visit. I don't know how frequently, <laughs> but there's one place that they all visit. So we all need tech-enabled toilets. I wasn't expecting tech-enabled <laughs> toilets to be the answer to that question. But I, I suppose a big part of that is is asking the right questions as well, isn't it? Because the data you you get from patients uh, or people take medicines is is only going to be as good as the questions you ask and often within a consultation there'll be a set of questions that are asked about a set, certain set of things which captures 60 percent 90 percent of the information but th there might be other but, stuff how do you capture that? but this is where ai comes into play because it will personalize the questions to that to that patient a to the medication they're on and B to their responses. So we are rolling out something called Ask A&E, which is a joint project with, with Babylon Health, which is before someone even phones NHS 111 or walks into our A&E, they have to go into that app and answer questions. And the following questions are all changed based on the response to the first question. Then it will then it will direct them to the most appropriate place, which, which could be A&E, could be making an appointment with your with, with your with your GP could be go to your community pharmacy because they, they've got a PVD and you've got a union infection they can just give you the what what you need where we're getting to with that so at the moment we're asking the questions so stopping them coming to A&E where we want that to develop is that if it's saying you need to see your GP it it books the appointment for the GP mm. at a time and date convenient to you if it says you need to go to community pharmacy, it actually lists the community pharmacies which are open at that time of day and the ones which have got the PGDs to do what you need need them to do. So that's the next stage we're working upon. Because that's the thing what patients want. Mm. It, it's all well and good sending me to an app, but I want that app ideally to get me to an outcome. Yeah, yeah. And, and how amazing could it be if you could book the GP so the first thing, as a phase one, what we're doing is we're recruiting, I believe it's 14 GPs into the hospital. So we, we will run a GP clinic. And because it's our clinic, we can ensure that booking system is in in that app. So where they need to see a GP, they'll be told you can either see your own GP or you can come into our walk-in centre. This is the next availability and this is who you will see. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, it's, it's got me thinking about all sorts of things and that, that kind of gap between the patient experience and maybe the clinical perspective. So in any given conversation, there's two sides to the argument and they're both talking about the same thing, but with different understanding of the situation. So the patient's thinking, oh, you know, I'm in a lot of pain. The consultant's saying, well, your scan looks fine, so you're clear. And how do you reconcile that? And uh, what, what, what can, yeah, how, how do you better support those but, conversations but, but, but with something like that so the so you tell me i'm in a lot of pain the first thing ai would say is when's the last time you took your pain medication do you take it regularly yes or no if you take it regularly what's the interval between between the doses the first thing you'd, you'd look at is, is is a patient concordant with what they're being prescribed the next thing you move on to probably is are you taking anything extra on a prn basis 
to, to augment, and that will then all paint that picture of, of that pain. Is it down to they're on the wrong medication, or is it called and they haven't understood the instructions yeah. or the medication where it's saying two, but only taking one? If they said I'm taking one, they say, well, why? It could be our side effects. Mm. So you can see how, if it developed, you, you would you would tease out the answers to the questions you want to be able to determine what is really causing that pain. Yeah, okay. So do you see a, a future where it's a, and we're already seeing it with, with 111 and kind of a, a tech-first A&E system that, that's being brought in, isn't it? So do you see that with anything relating to medicines, that there's a, a place in the future where you'll be directing people to this is, you know, ask my pharmacist or, or whatever you might might brand it as a, in Birmingham to say, okay, any conversations about your medicines, ask the app and then it'll... No, definitely. I saw a presentation when we could all get in a room together many years ago now. It was like where the, the Valendra Centre had developed, uh, again, it was an AI type app around patient questioning. And there was a patient who presented, he was a cancer patient, and he, he described eloquently how amazing it was and how it just reduced his anxiety. Because he'd wake up and think of a question like, is medication going to make my hair dry? And he could go on to the Valendra app and he'd know the answer straight away. Mm. And, and also it would direct him to further resources. And where need be, where the question was asked where the answer wasn't there, it would say, well, someone will phone you back. And they'd ensure mm. that went to the, to the clinical nurse specialist who would ensure they phoned the patient back. You know, yeah. it, it totally transformed his patient journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a question. It's, it, it's completely slipped my mind straight in, straight out. But it, it, it was around that piece. Um, and I suppose that what one thing that I didn't, um, didn't get into earlier was that piece around bringing systems together um, looking to bring all of these new technologies in and do things differently. How easy is it to get all those stakeholders on board? You mentioned in terms of community pharmacy. It's not the worst. Again, this, this is something which we're getting asked a lot, particularly from, from pharma. But, but the key thing we have to realise is we're going to be a new entity. Mm. So as part of that new entity, we've got to set a foundation, which is mainly a government foundation and rules engagement. So in my mind, I'm not seeing anything drastically changing for at least two years. You've got to get the right people in the right places, those relationships developed, those boards developed, the rules of engagement set in place. The statutory legislation itself is not coming in, hopefully, till April next year, and hopefully it will be delayed beyond, beyond that. And then, sort of 18 months, two years, and I think that's when you'll start to see things happening because without the appropriate governance framework in place we we just can't see that but the key thing as part of the ICS is what is that GP relationship I think that's the most important question because they are independent contractors but a secondary care viewpoint is but they're working under NHS contract so the same way we have locums in hospital they have to do as we say because they're working under our contract within our organization even though they are independent financially to us so how do we get to that position whereby the gps are aligning themselves to the wider health system and are moving in the direction the wider health system wants them to move in because they're working under an nhs contract we've got it at the moment where a number of hospitals have 
taken over PCNs. Wolverhampton, the prime example, Warwick locally, as we have as well, just one one practice ourselves. Whether that expands, it's going to be a challenge because to buy a partner is very expensive, and so juniors aren't coming in into that four. But the the idea on Naverna would be that all all PCNs were owned by the ICS, mm. and everyone within within that are employees of the ICS. I know that puts me on a on a list for GPs to and Ruby uh, dolls except for the GPs yeah, were bombarded by, by emails, India. <laughs> I'm going to be taken off the air, I think. But, um, uh, but but I think in their heart of hearts, the G GPs also know that is that is the direction of travel we need we need to go in this position of having independent fund holding and independent PCNs isn't going to work they need to integrate mm. with the wider and, and and the stuff that they, that modality is doing is amazing what 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 they are doing they are integrating as much as they can they they're trying to do elements of what we historically see the secondary secondary care care within Within the primary care setting, they're doing that more diagnosis that you'd mm -hmm. normally see doing in secondary care. And that's where we want to get all primary care to. But I'm also fully aware of the medical legal issues that concern GPs. And that's the reason they do bounce people into secondary care. They don't want to miss a test mm -hmm. and they don't want to misdiagnose. And they just don't have A, the time or the equipment to do what's needed to discount certain things yeah, yeah. but to to support that we are actually developing diagnostic centers in primary care so with a unit in bullring the main shopping center in birmingham which is going to develop in a diagnostic center we're looking at others across the patch so again rather than sending to secondary care you send them to the diagnostic center to get the diagnostics done and then we'll determine as a partnership what the next path is for that patient yeah okay so as a, I suppose as a getting towards a, a lasting thought, um, well, there's there's one quick question there, I suppose, in terms of your acquisition of a of a practice, what was the the main driver in that? But for, uh, for us, we, we've just taken over what was essentially the walk-in okay. service to 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 ensure it's managed managed appropriately. So, so essentially, it was it was CCG owned that we've we've taken on. So it wasn't as critical, but I know. Wolverhampton and Warwick have actually taken over GP practices, which were in private hands initially. Has to be a rationale, to be honest, I don't know. Mm. I okay. believe it's around linking in and having that, that seamless care, but whether they've achieved that, I truly don't know whether, whether they're still acting independently. But the vision is, let's get it while we can, and then we'll integrate as best as we can as we move forward. It'll be very interesting to review their patient journeys versus standard practice patient journeys in terms yeah, of referrals into secondary care outcomes and even medication usage yeah fantastic thank you so so as a lasting thought indy if if you could summarize i, th I think a lot or, or most of our audience are interested in kind of the future of medicines in in integrated care so if you could summarize in a sentence you know what what do you see as the future for medicines in integrated care how would you how would you sum that up I personally do think that the future is bright within IC as long as we get it right and we provide the appropriate support within the primary care setting. I can see more and more specialised medicines being prescribed with, within primary care and managed with it within that primary care setting. And the hope is that we will jointly 
support the GPs with that, and especially with what you've got pharmacists within GP practices and you've got technicians within GP practices as well, that they will also help and support. But also, I'm, I'm very keen to ensure that patients escalate up that treatment pathway as quickly as they need to, and that we are able to jump steps and not just say dogmatically, no, you've got to go to this because that's what the piece of paper says. Even though the presentation does say, maybe we need, for this patient, we need to do things a bit differently. So this is where I think getting rid of that commissioning element within primary and secondary, hopefully working as one system that we can start to deliver for what the health economy in our system needs. I think that's a key thing that Simon Stevens said many years ago, is the, is the needs of all health economies are different because the graphics within that area are different. The population basis is different. So, so the health inputs need to reflect what that population base needs rather than a national thing, which, which is what Quaff point essentially was. You will measure everyone's blood pressure and blood sugar, anyone over 40 or 50, you will do an annual MOT on them. It, all, all that needs to change. But I come back to the biggest risk that we face as an IRS is, is becoming a variant mm. and, and actually restricting access to healthcare so rather than being at the cutting edge. Be, being doing the inappropriate thing, getting back to where we were in the 90s, which was which was a bad place to be in terms of access to medicines and access to healthcare. Yeah, absolutely, fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we've we've hit time now, so thanks for for joining me this afternoon. It's it's always a, a joy to speak with you, and really appreciate your time this afternoon. And and thank you everyone at home or wherever you are for listening in. Uh, please follow our NHS Whispers page on, on LinkedIn to stay in touch with all the latest developments. If there's anything that you do want to understand more about what's going on in the NHS at the moment, drop us a, an email at nhsinsights at mtechaccess.co.uk. Next month, uh, I'll be back on the 30th of April talking about what a place is. Um, it's arguably the most important but possibly least understood part of the new ICS structures. So please join us then. Uh, and for now, thank you very much and uh, take care. Bye bye. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.